we came up, remember it. We're a Trinitarian church, so we do three and then one. Genesis chapter 40 is where we'll be today. Uh, happy Father's Day. In keeping with Father's Day tradition, I forgot to say that at the beginning. So, uh, happy Father's Day to all you dads. I'm grateful you're here, grateful you led your families here. Um, if your Father's Day is one of those holidays, it's a good one, but can also be a really hard one. Um, and so if you've lost a, a father or a grandfather or someone that you love, and this is kind of the, the first year or just kind of a painful re-reminder of their absence, uh, let me know. Let, let me tell you, you have a Heavenly Father who doesn't leave. And so I hope that that's a comfort to you today. I hope that it's a good day for you uh, and a day that draws you closer to the Lord. It doesn't look like it, but I used to run cross-country and track in college. I've retired, been retired for a while. Um, I was not a sprinter. I ran long distance. I've often joked that it was a blessing from the Lord to be gifted at long distance because you would then have to run long distance. And I raced in a particular way. Uh, I did not like to lead the race. I liked to be behind. And so when the gun would fire at the start of a race, I would walk the first two or three steps, let everybody else kind of jockey for position, and then I would like to sit in the back and just run behind people and pass people until I kind of found somebody that uh, I felt like I could keep pace with and run with with them. Uh, In Panhandle, where I grew up, every July 4th, there's a 5K. It's called the Panhandle July 4th 5K. And there's one in my memory that still, I still laugh about it, and I still think about it. Um, I had been through my first year of college, so I was back home for the summer and, and needed to work out, and I was like, well, I'll just go run this 5K. Uh, and so I show up, and I'm at the starting line getting ready to run, and then one of my friends, who's a year younger than me, uh, who's a lineman, this is important, and looks like a lineman uh, at the time, run, he comes, he gets like at the very front of the line of runners, and uh, he wore a cutoff shirt that was very inappropriate. Uh, his shorts were six inches too short. Not six inches. Six inches too short. And it's this big old lineman dude. Uh, we, we called him Cho. He's a lawyer now. Uh, and I don't even know if he remembers this, but it is ingrained in my memory. And Cho had zero intention of running all 5K of this run. And if my memory serves me right, which it very well, I may have added to the story in my own head, but I like the version that I've kind of come up with. Uh, when the guy, you know, gets ready, says, runners, take your mark, I believe Cho got in, like, the sprinter stance for this 5K. And then as soon as the guy shoots the gun, like, Cho just takes off running as fast as he can. And we started about, like, half a block into the courthouse. And then as soon as you hit that second block, you turned. So you run around the courthouse a block and a half, and Cho was winning at that turn after half a block. And then all I remember seeing is Cho with his short shorts and his cutoff shirt just keep turning right into the parking lot of the courthouse, and he's done. That's all he was doing in the race was just running out there right at the beginning. And it still, to this day, makes me laugh so hard because I was trying to figure out, like, there's no way... Like, I'm a distance runner. I ran it in college. Like, if you're going to start out that fast at the race, you're not going to do well. We always laugh. Like, there's that one kid at their very first cross-country meet in junior high. As soon as the gun takes off, they're gone. And it takes them a while to finish. See, the thing about 
distance races that, that Cho knew. He just was sprinting out and then turned to the side. But we know just in life is, is starting well is important, finishing well is important, but really in a long-distance race and in life, it's the middle where most races are won or lost. It's in the middle when you can't see the finish line, when you're in pain and there's real pain, when your feet hurt and your muscles ache. So that's where races are won and, and lost. And in life, it's often in the middle when there's pain and you don't see the finish line and your, your body aches and there's suffering and there's hardship that, that really what we believe about God kind of boils to the surface. We can say all the right things, right? But when life's hard and suffering happens and hits, especially in the middle of life, what we believe about God genuinely rises to the top and it's displayed. And so we're going to see in this passage here in Genesis 40 is that faithful endurance is what the Lord is teaching us and showing us in Joseph's life at this point. So let's pray, and then we're going to look at the book and walk verse by verse through this passage. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you that we do get to gather together on Father's Day. God, I thank you that we have men in our church who lead their families by by coming to church together, to gather together, by serving in the church, by leading in our community. God, I thank you for passages like this that remind us that life is not a sprint, but a a marathon. And that though starting well is important and finishing well is important, the middle, God, is where most of our life is lived. And so I pray that you would encourage us through this passage, that you would convict us through this passage, and that we would display the gospel in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. Now, sometime after this, the cupbearer and the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, and each his own dream, and each dream its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Let's pause. So we find Joseph uh, is in prison. And I like what the text says. In one verse it says he's confined in prison. and the next verse it says, but he's over other people in the prison. So he's like the warden, but he's also a prisoner. It's a weird state for Joseph. He was just in Potiphar's house where Potiphar's wife lied about him. And so now he's thrown into this prison, but God was with him and he was promoted. Before that, his brothers tried to kill him and then settled on selling him into slavery. But God was with him, so he was promoted. That's kind of been the theme of Joseph's life. Bad things happen, but then he gets promoted. Bad things happen, and then he gets promoted over and over. And then we approach this story kind of looking for some resolve to this pattern for him. And so we're introduced to two important people who have no name but have important titles, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, both of the king of Egypt, which is Pharaoh, and he's used interchangeably, king of Egypt, Pharaoh. Both 
are extremely important jobs for the king. The chief cupbearer literally means an attendant, and his primary duty was to fill and serve cups of wine for the king. But kings feared being poisoned. They're kind of paranoid. And so they would have to have a cupbearer that they trusted completely because their lives were literally at stake. And so these cupbearers were often paid very well, and because they were trusted so much, they often became somebody who had the ear of the king, somebody who could advise the king, a friend of the king. They were confidants. And the chief baker is very similar to the chief cupbearer, except instead of drink, it was food that the baker would do. And some translations may say chief butler. That's kind of the idea here. He was serving food, doing errands and things for the king, but very trusted. Both had close contact to Pharaoh. Both, if they wanted, could play a sinister role in in killing and dethroning Pharaoh if they wished. So it's not really super surprising that both of them end up in prison because kings are often paranoid. And if you begin to distrust one of them because they say or do something wrong or you read an intention wrong, then they're going to be people you're not going to want near you. And so the king Pharaoh imprisons them in his own prison. And we're not told... Like if there's one offense that both of them commit together or if it's separate offenses, we're not told if they're guilty or innocent. All we're told is this is their role, chief cupbearer, chief baker, and then they end up in prison. But it's no ordinary prison. They end up in the prison that Joseph is also in. But not just that, Joseph has been appointed to be kind of over them in this prison. It's like the Lord knows what he's doing. It says this prison is located at the captain of the guard's house which is the same title used for Potiphar. So there's a little bit of ambiguity of where this is at. Joseph very well could still be technically in Potiphar's house, but just in the prison on Potiphar's house, or he could be with one of Potiphar's colleagues. But either way, it's a royal prison. And by God's providence, Joseph is attending to these two men at this time in history. This is not an accident. And so one day Joseph checks on them and they're troubled or they're distraught. And so Joseph asks why, and they say, we have had these dreams. And they're two different dreams. The text makes very clear, each its own dream, and each dream its own interpretation. But they had both dreams on the same night. Dreams are one of those weird things that that fascinates human beings. They fascinate us even today. I did a search on Amazon. I just typed in dream interpretation, and there was 80,000 hits for books on Amazon. So if you're a reader, there you go. I do. I rarely dream. And when I say that, there's always somebody who goes, well, actually you dream, you just don't remember it. Well, you're not in my head, so you don't know. Yeah, that's right. Amen, amen. Dreams in our modern times, if you, you listen to like pop psychologists, what they say dreams are is your conscience or your subconscious that's revealing things to you. And there's this whole kind of world outside of, of Christianity that's, that's very secular, interpreting dreams. And like there's dictionaries. You can, it's ridiculous when you kind of get into all of these things. But in ancient times, it wasn't about your conscience or your subconscious. What the Egyptians believed is if you had a dream, then one of their gods was telling you something. 
And so they were very much like telling the future of things that were happening, or that's what they believed. And so if a normal person has a dream in Egypt, then that dream typically was about your family, it was about you, maybe something in the future. But if a king had a dream, or somebody close to the king has a dream, which comes into play in the next chapter, then it was viewed as one of the gods telling you something that's going to happen in the future. But the problem was these dreams are never just straightforward and clear. They're a little bit ambiguous. Which is why the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are so distraught. They both have separate dreams on the same night. They know that it means something, but there's nobody there to interpret these dreams for them, which becomes a very lucrative position in Egypt. If you're good at it, then essentially you can take somebody's dream and predict the future. And a king who has people who can tell you what's going to happen will honor them because they're very valuable to the kingdom. And so these men are distraught. And we see Joseph's response to them shows us that Joseph is growing a little bit as a leader. Right? He responds to the men with compassion first. He notices that they're hurting, and he notices that they're troubled. If you remember with his brothers, when the Lord gave Joseph two dreams, his response was to go brag about the dreams to his brother. They already had a jealous hatred for him. He did not read the room well. And now he's learning to have compassion on these men. He responds to these men by talking about the Lord. Earlier with his brothers, in that section of Scripture where Joseph gets those dreams, the name of God is not even mentioned. But now, when he sees their distraught and he hears about their dream, the first thing Joseph said was, well, does not interpretations belong to God? That's not a throwaway line in the book. Dreams to the Egyptians were from a God. And what Joseph is saying is, my God is greater than your gods. My God can interpret your dreams. It's a theological statement. He is making a claim that his God is greater than the Egyptian gods. Joseph responds to these men with hope that God keeps his promises even if they're made in dreams. There's no doubt that Joseph hearing these two men's dreams is thinking about his dreams that he's had, which have yet to come to fruition. He's thinking about the stalks of corn bowing to him, the sun, the moon, 12 stars bowing to him. That hasn't lost hope on Joseph. He still believes that God can fulfill those dreams and that he will. And so he has hope as he begins to pray to interpret these dreams. I want to say just a slight caution when it comes to dreams. We're warned in the Bible uh, that that though God can and has used dreams, and he certainly does, that they are not our complete and full authority. Jeremiah 29.8 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. There's a theologian named John Frame who says it like this. He, God, is sovereign over our dreams and our subconscious, just as he is sovereign over all the workings of our eyes and ears and noses. Every event in some way reveals him. All I'm saying is that the only place we can go to find the supremely authoritative words of God is the Bible. So maybe that leaves us wondering, well, why in the Bible does God seem to communicate through dreams or visions or angels or even a donkey one time? And if God can use a donkey, he can use us, right? 
Yet now it doesn't seem like God uses those things very often. The reality is we have something that they did not have. The written word of God. At the time of the old at the time of Jesus, the Old Testament would have been written, but the printer did not exist. So they had copies, but they were limited in their copies. And the printing press doesn't come around until the 1500s, which correlates with the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things that Martin Luther and others got in trouble for was they wanted to put the Bible in the everyday language of the people. And so Martin Luther translated it from the Greek and Hebrew text to German. And there's a man named William Tyndall that if you don't know him, you need to look up his story. He is in, like huge for us as English speakers. He was killed because he was translating the Bible into English. It seems crazy to us, but he was killed because he was translating the Bible into English. And it wasn't until King James comes around and declares that he wants an English Bible that they pick up a lot of the work that William Tyndale did, and you have the King James Version, which first came around around the 1600s. Think about that. English access to the written Word of God is around 500 years old. Not to mention how literacy rates now are substantially higher than they had been even just 100 years ago. A large portion of the population would never have been able to read the Bible, not because they didn't have access, but because they could not read, period. But now we have access to the Bible. You can Google Bible online, and it pulls up free versions. You can get an app on your phone that has hundreds of thousands of free versions of the Bible. If you go to the store, Bibles are often sold cheap. There's not, you can buy expensive ones if you want, but there's really cheap access to the Bible. And our population, except for Hermley, is mostly literate. So again, God can absolutely use dreams and does, but the Bible is our final authority, not dreams. So if you want to hear from God, read your Bible. Don't take a nap. Deal? Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches, and I, as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as you formerly were when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh so that uh, so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here I have done nothing that they should put uh, put me in the pit. So the reality of what Joseph is doing is Joseph saying, either God is sovereign over dreams and everything, and I am a faithful messenger who will interpret this for him, or I am a fraud and God is weak. And so the cupbearer goes first, says his dream. I imagine, like, like we talked about Genesis 1 with, with creation, when everything happens in, in seven days, and we get arguments, well, was it literal seven days or not seven days? I imagine this is a lot of what creation looks like, where you have the vines that shoot up, and then the clusters, and then the blossoms, and then the grapes. that just kind of all happen at one time. And so there's three branches on the vine, it budded blossom, it shows the grapes, the cup pearer's hand is there, he grabs the grape, squishes it into the cup, presses them in the cup, and he hands it to Pharaoh. And so Joseph said, here's the proper interpretation. 
I don't want to overlook this point because this is vital for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Interpretation is a part of the Bible that is probably the hardest, I think. It's something that gets overlooked, but it's something that I want to point out. It's something, honestly, I struggle with and could use your prayers for. It's one thing to read the Bible. It's another thing to faithfully interpret the Bible. There is always a temptation to say, well, what I think needs to be said, or or more often, uh, not say what the text thinks to be said because we might offend people. There's always a temptation to read in the text what I want it to say as opposed to letting the text read me and proclaiming it right. Joseph's faithful to God in his interpretation. And the cupbearer's interpretation is, is pretty easy to be faithful to. Joseph says the three branches are three days. Pharaoh's going to restore you to your old position in three days. The important phrase is he will raise up your head. When a king walks by, everybody kneels before the king. But if the king looks at you and he commands you and he says, look up, it's honor. It's the king lifting up your head. And then we get a glimpse into Joseph's heart. He says, do me kindness. It's said. It's been translated steadfast love in other places. Remember me when it's well with you. That's how confident Joseph is in this interpretation. It will come true. Remember me. Joseph pleads his innocence. He said, I was stolen from my family by his family and thrown into a pit. That's what he refers to his imprisonment as. That's also what he was thrown into when he first got captive was a pit. So all of Joseph's life in his mind has been him just in this pit that he's trying to get out of. And he's in this pit not because he's done something wrong, not because he deserved this captivity, but of wrong things that have happened to him. And there's not a word from us in the text if the cupbearer says sure or no. There's no recorded response of the cupbearer to put him at ease or to struggle with. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, well, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the utmost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. And hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. So the baker hears the cupbearer's interpretation. He goes, his was good. So he says, well, here's my dream, Joseph. There's three cakes, three cake baskets, and the top one is, is food. And then there's all these birds dive bombing and eating the cakes when I'm walking with it on my head. This is where hard truth interpretations come in. We're not told how the baker receives this interpretation, though I'm sure he probably wasn't pleased. I'm sure his hope was that maybe Joseph is wrong. Three baskets equal three days, and then the king, Joseph says, (laughs) will raise up your head, which is the same phrase he uses for the cupbearer, except Joseph adds two words, from you. There's a world of difference and having your head raised up before the king, and having your head raised up from you by the king. 
and then a grotesque, like the birds are going to eat your flesh and you'll be hanged. We may not know a lot about Egyptian culture, but if you think about Egypt, one of the first things that comes to mind is pyramids. And when we think about pyramids, what we know is that's where they would bury Pharaoh and that's where they would bury other people. We know mummies because that's what Egyptians would do to bodies. They would mummify the people, carefully placing their arms, their their body in positions so as not to disturb their physical body. It was something that the Egyptians valued, the physical body after death. And so that Joseph tells this man, you're going to lose your head, you're going to be hung on a tree, and that birds are going to eat your flesh, is him attacking this man's belief that the body was supposed to be sacred after death. It was the worst kind of punishment he could have imagined. And and, and that's not an easy interpretation to look at somebody and say. Joseph could have said, I don't really want to tell you what's going to happen. Just let me just say, enjoy the next three days. Jessica said, maybe I'm wrong. But he doesn't. He tells it to him bluntly. He tells it to him cleanly. We don't know why they got put in prison in the first place. And nowhere in the text are the cupbearer and the beggar called innocent. And so Joseph faithfully interprets the word of God, even though it spells certain death for the man that he's speaking to. Verse 20. And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants, and he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker. And Joseph, as Joseph had interpreted to them, But the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So three days later, Pharaoh's having a birthday. Cake, balloons, pinata, the whole nine yards. It's a feast for the servants. We're told he gets the cupbearer and he restores him. He lifts up his head. And we're told he lifts the head from the chief baker. There's some debate on, on what exactly, like the nature of the death of the chief cupbearer. Because you're like, how can you hang somebody if they have no head? There's some people who, maybe your translation say that he was put on a stake as opposed to hang. There's some nuance there that we can argue with. But the main thing that we need to see is that his body was on display for everybody to see. That what Joseph said came true. That he was treated, his body was not mummified, but he was treated like garbage. Joseph was correct in his interpretations. Which means God is the author of those men's dreams. And if God is the author of those pagan Egyptian dreams, then God was certainly the author of Joseph's dreams too. But we're left at the end of the story with Joseph still in prison, forgotten by the cupbearer. So we know is God's timing is absolutely perfect. But in that moment for Joseph, in that moment for maybe even us, we can acknowledge in our heads that God's timing is perfect, but it doesn't make those moments really any easier. Joseph was right. He faithfully interpreted the word of God, yet he's left 
in prison. He was faithful to God as his messenger, but he's still in prison, suffering injustice at the hands of men. Remember, this is the middle of the long-distance race where there's a lot of pain, where there's much desire to stop, where there's much desire to quit, where there's a desire to turn away and stop running the race, where the, the finish line seems further than it did at the start of the race, and you're alone and you're in the middle of it. Nobody watches the middle of a long-distance race. It's the beginning and the end. Life is very much like that. Joseph's life is very much like that. One scholar helped me apply this. His name is Ian Dweig. He says, We find it hard to keep on believing and hoping that God will really answer our prayers or the prayers of others at this point. Perhaps God isn't really good enough to care deeply about us, or perhaps we aren't good enough to deserve his intervention, or perhaps he isn't powerful enough to do what we've asked him. And so gradually our faith and our hope ebb away from the point where we no longer ask anything of God or we expect anything from him. We feel neglected, we feel abandoned by God, and we feel like we've been cast onto the trash heap of life. And so when my expectations of life are disappointed, I become frustrated. A word I use to conceal the fact that I'm angry. And I replay in my head all the ways in which people, need, uh, people around me need to serve and to love me. And if they fail to do so, then I start to resent them. That response reveals our hearts. Just as Joseph's response revealed his that moment is a profound statement of what we actually believe about God and the world. It shows that at a deep level, I believe the world exists to fill my dreams and my aspirations, and that God himself exists to glorify and enjoy me by making my fondest hopes come true. That's why I feel let down. It's why I feel betrayed. It's why I typically respond by withdrawing from life. I feel that God owes me better than what I have, or he at least owes me an explanation of why my life is going the way that it's going. And in that process, we miss what's the most precious reality about the suffering that the Lord sends us through. God's enduring presence in the midst of it. Suffering does not extinguish hope it produces hope by training us in endurance maybe you've been waiting and hoping and praying and enduring for a long time and you're tired of waiting for God to bring to fruition the plans and the purposes that he has for your life and you feel that God has placed you in a pit and that he has just forgotten about you Or perhaps you're tired of the enduring pain of false dawns or false hopes. Those moments where perhaps it seems like you're going to get out of the pit only to be kicked back down and to not be delivered from it. Or perhaps you need to be reminded that God's timing is always perfect. That there are no accidents with God. That we do not understand why we need to be in the pit. And it may make no sense to us right now. Yet what counts is the fact that it makes sense to God. Whose wisdom and love and care are infinitely higher and more profound than ours. 
Where can we find assurance of God's love and care as we struggle and endure today's trials? How can we know that God's arms of love are really extended towards us and that he has not forgotten us, even and especially when it seems like he's leaving us in the same pit year after year? And Paul tells us in Romans 5.5 that that's the Holy Spirit's job for us. That if we cry out to Jesus with the same words as the thief on the cross, remember me. Similar words to what Joseph pleads with the cupbearer, remember me. That the Holy Spirit takes those cries and presents them before the throne of grace. So when we feel like orphans, we need to remember Romans 8, 16, and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God with the fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. That produces and enables us to say with Paul in Romans eight eighteen, the next verse, for I consider that the sufferings of this present world this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's being revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, we can do nothing to merit that kind of remembrance. What we deserve is the fate of the baker, not the fate of the cupbearer. We have truly sinned against our master. And the wages of sin is death. And yet in the ultimate twist of providence, the one whom we appeal to be remembered by was not merely sold, abused, and wrongly imprisoned for us. His body hung on a tree under a curse even though he committed no crime. Why should the Lord Jesus be treated with such cruelty? when he exhibited perfect love towards those around him and enduring faith and hope in God. Why did he have to endure utterly undeserving sufferings? Because it was my sin that nailed him there. It was my debt that had to be paid. It was our sins that nailed him there. It was our debt that had to be paid. All of those times that we withdrew to ourselves, where we resentfully ignored the things of the Lord, where we ignored the needs of the others, those have to be atoned for. All of those times when we reviled God's goodness and His power and we wallow in self, uh, uh, unbelief and self-pity, that had to be judged. And so the one whom we cry, remember me, is the very one we ourselves pierced. Yet this Jesus not only promises to remember us, but to lift up our heads when he comes with his kingdom. And not only that, he remembers to be with us in every step of our earthly pilgrimage until we receive his glorious inheritance. That's grace. Jesus tells us this because he knows that it is precisely as we remember him especially in our sufferings. As we remember his glory, remembering his death until he comes, that we find help to wait in hope 
with full assurance of his love and his care for us. Suffering, even ongoing suffering, does not automatically produce endurance. It doesn't automatically produce character. It does not automatically produce hope. There are plenty of people around the world who have suffered and are soured by it and have become bitter and cynical and cold. But as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, reminding us of the amazing love of God that has been given to us in Christ, the same experiences that would otherwise make us sour and bitter instead gradually make us sweet and tender. We slowly become more compassionate towards others in their weakness, joyful in the midst of pain and discouragement, filled with hope that God's good purposes will bear gracious fruit in and through us. God ultimately enabled Joseph to recognize the sins other people committed against him were under God's sovereign control and that God would work those for his good and for God's divine purpose. May the Spirit of God instill confidence in God's sovereign love and gracious faithfulness to our hearts as well. Let's pray. Father, we come to you not as as people who deserve glory, not as people who deserve grace, not as people who deserve to be uplifted and held up and modeled after, but God, we come to you as people who deserve punishment, who deserve wrath. Yet, God, we plead, remember us. And you display that remembrance. You display that love for us in a way that we could never fathom or understand by taking our punishment on the cross and imputing, crediting to us your righteousness. So now, Father, when you look at us, you don't see us in our sin. You see the righteousness of your son, Jesus. That we have not by any works of our hand not by how good or great we are, but because we are dependent on you. God, I pray for believers in this room that that gospel, that good news, would encourage us, would propel us forward in our life as we live out our calling in you. So that in the middle of the distance race, God, when life is hard and we are in pain and we are in suffering and the finish line doesn't seem to be coming fast enough, we remember that you are with us.